0: There we are. All right. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, This time our speaker is me. So I'm super excited to be teaching a class today on something that uh, we truly are passionate about here at um, Ariel Litzedek. And looking at the ways that we can uh, best advocate and learn about the history of migration, justice and immigration and how it's working. Um, My name is Eddie Chavez Calderon. I am the campaign director of Ariel Litzedek. It has been a blessing of mine to be with Uri Litzionek for close to five years now, working with my great mentor Rev. Uh, Shmuley Yanklowitz has just been a blessing, um, and and to give everybody context of of how our immigration justice work has really began, Rev. Shmuley has had a history of of really going above and beyond, stepping in for migrant communities, um, and it really started to cultivate and um, started to. Um, really elevate during 2018 when um, we were witnessing a situation that was um, really awful. And what was occurring at that time was that uh, immigration was actually dropping off migrants in the middle of the streets. So they were dropping off migrants in the middle of the streets in 100 plus degree weather here in Phoenix, Arizona. And at that time, we were noticing that they weren't really telling everybody. They were just making sure that folks got dropped off from the bus and then they left. So you had hundreds of, of migrant workers and migrant families literally just walking randomly in, in, in the streets of uh, Phoenix near um, the Greyhound bus station um, without any sort of help. From there, a lot of the faith leaders started to mobilize. They started to see, hey, we need to do something. We need to step up. We need to do something. We need to fight um, to get our community rallied up to be able to support. And what happened was a couple of faith leaders uh, ended up showing up and and supporting a lot of the the migrant community at that time. We were on the streets literally bringing in water, Gatorade, essential uh, to, to the community, like medical aid. Uh, we were providing food for folks. And this was at a time when like, nobody was really stepping up to do anything. And you can only imagine the the amount of need and support where well, we we're getting hundreds of community members being just dropped off, uh, not told where to go. Nobody really um, understood that the at that time we were getting a lot of Central Americans uh, did not even speak Spanish. And that was a huge language barrier to a lot of the community stepping up and, and truly engaging with folks. Anywho, that's to give y'all a, kind of a little bit of how uh, Erlitsedic's passion for migrant justice um, really, really started. Um, with, within that time, we, we really, I wanna give everybody context of the historical um, migrational practice of how immigrants um, and the immigration system kind of evolved from what it used to be to now where it is right now. It used to be um, a, a revolving door where migrants were um, coming in and out of the United States, working on on a lot of the, the crop seasons. You would notice that migrants would flood in and um, would come in with their families and then come out and come back to Mexico. This was a a continuous process. But see, prior to 9-11 and in in 2016, we had something come about after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, At that time, President George W. Bush's administration created a Department of Homeland Security folding into Customs and Border Patrol, thus cementing the notion that the US immigration policy should fall under the banner of national security. This was a huge impact on the way that we look at immigration right now. Protections and thus cementing um, each of the policies that would fall under national security with the goal of deterring migrants has remained at the forefront of our border control policy. This was called at that time, the Secure Fence Act in 2016, which actually passed um, the House um, with a vote of uh, 283 to 138. And it sought to achieve operation control the border within eighteen months. And see, this was a, a a really interesting time for for a lot of 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 policy change. And from here, we gathered this change called uh, deterrence through fear. And this is a very important part of how we look at immigration, because a lot of the what was sought through was to put make it as hard as possible for immigrants to cross into the United States. Because if it was really hard and if it was really scary, then that would deter people from coming through. But this was simply not the case of what happened. Folks started seeing that there was a new militarization of the border where it seemed very, uh, very scary. We started to noticing walls, we started noticing barbed wire, um, new sanctions of police showing up with very heavily, almost militaristic um, kind of look to them that changed from the way that Border Patrol used to act and the way they, they used to um, mobilize. So this was a, a very big presence that changed after um, 9-11 and its own system to really look at deterring people and making it as, as hard as possible to come in. But my friends, this does not stop migration numbers, not one bit. What this did cause was unnecessary deaths. See, because communities continued to still migrate to the United States. Communities continued to go around even more dangerous routes. In Arizona, migrant families have to go through deserts and hills to get into any sort of border crossing that is not within the port of entry in Nogales. Thus putting families in extreme danger of heat, being lost, being uh, away from their own families uh, that could help them have access to them immediately. This was a a really big wake up call for a lot of um, community members that really focus on helping migrants. At that time, we started to see skyrocketing in people's deaths, And this is where we started to evolve into seeing that people had to find and really address the fact that there was bodies at the border. There was teams that would set up to try to identify human remains in the border and try to figure out how they could make sure that their families um, back home would have access to being able to find their remains. And this really hurts. This really hurts to think that a system that wanted to stop migration would rather see folks die than to create, at that time, a pathway for folks to be able to engage properly into the United States. So that gives everybody kind of a context of, of, of the history of how immigration policy starts to really skyrocket. And um, a lot of, of that uh, anti-immigrant policy was throughout this time where uh, narrative shifts from 9-11 really started to transform how we looked at migrants and the response of the anti-terrorist Islamophobic kind of approach to things was to directly affect the borders and the Southern border, because that somehow was the main reason why we were getting a flood. And um, you can directly correlate a lot of this narrative with a lot of, um, at that time, what became very um, American pride, America first um notions at that time where everybody kind of came together and we're like you know we're all American we're all we're all in this together but then we're also all against migration into the United States so at that time it was very easy for those policies to kind of seep through without everybody actually really paying attention to what was happening and this this is uh really where we started to build off of that narrative on migration justice so I want to give everybody a history of my, my own experience with this, uh, because as many of you may not know, when I was five years old, I turned five here, actually, in the United States, I actually crossed uh, the border through Nogales, actually, where we help right now at Area Lutzere, um communities. I crossed through the exact same border. At that time, prior to 9-11, the walls and the militarization and the barbed wire, none of that really existed. It was honestly just people coming in and out and folks like there was like a couple Border Patrol agents who would ask you if you were a citizen. And at that time, my mom and I, um, you know, we really had a rough time in the desert. And when we talk about those those life or death practices of having to survive in, in the most brutal way, my mom and I had to had to go through that. I remember throughout the, the entire journey, um, my mom had a four-year-old on her back, and um, things started to really get shaky when my, my mother started to notice that we were running out of water and food and see, so, like, you can have essentials and you can be okay, but as soon as you start running out of water, that's when things start to get really crazy. Throughout my journey, I never really saw my mom get emotional and never noticed that she would really change in the way that she would react. Um, She actually told me I was a very good four-year-old for such an intense journey of not making noise or fussing and stuff. Um, We were actually apprehended by Border Patrol uh, at a point where um, my mom really, really feared for our lives. And inside of a Border Patrol vehicle my mom asked for help. Um, she asked for water for me. And that's simply the only English she she really knew at that point. She just asked for water for, for her toddler. And this was the very first time where I witnessed like just like unprovoked, unsac- like raw cruelty when um, a Border Patrol agent threw a pack of saltine crackers on my mom. Um, that was the first time I ever really saw my mom like weep, um, to the fact that at her lowest, when she really needed somebody, this is where she was met with. This is, um, the reaction of border patrol, you know, um, my mom really, really was affected by that. Um, till this day, I think she has a a very distinct feeling of, of law enforcement based off of that one interaction of of what she experienced and and i mean it's still really really hard for for me to relive this memory with with her of of my own story and and where i am right now um but we let's let's now transform into currently what we're dealing with right now i'm gonna share my screen a little bit here to talk about a a new um a new bill that's coming up in um, Florida that is really affecting communities, and it's it's really really hurtful. And then we're going to jump into some um, Torah sources on why we should care Jewishly, like why why as Jews should we actively care about migrant justice. So as you as you all know, um, there is a governor in Florida, um, Ron DeSantis, who has uh, signed into law. Uh, And as of July 1st, SB 1718 is one of the most anti-immigrant laws meant to um, really hurt a lot of communities. Um, here's like kind of the 411s that I, I want to make sure that this video can also be shared with folks to understand who are traveling to Florida and have a, a, a migration issue that might hurt them. And if they are undocumented can really hurt them. So I created kind of this information with some of our national partners, um, that Ariel Letzetic has in the the fight for uh, migration justice. Uh, traveling into Florida, providing transportation to undocumented people from outside of the Florida into the state is now a criminal offense punishable by up to 15 years in prison, regardless of whether they are family, friends, co-workers. However, it's not a crime to transport within the state to an undocumented person. Let me be clear and give an example. Let's say me and Aguilera are going to go to Disney World and we're super happy to go to Disney World. But Aguilera doesn't know I'm undocumented. Glaya doesn't know, and I didn't tell her because I was extremely scared that if I would tell my friend Glaya that I was undocumented, that she would no longer be my friend. That's not the case because Glaya is an amazing person. But Glaya gets stopped with me and her in the car. Glaya can get um, arrested and can get charged with up to 15 years in prison. That's the reality right now. And that's just one part. Driver's license. We all understand how important a driver's license is to our livelihood. A driver's license now means that out-of-state driver's license for undocumented uh, people uh, are no longer valid in Florida. And those who drive with them can be fined and potentially detained. If you're an undocumented person traveling to, uh, to Florida for, uh, with a license from another state, we make I made sure to... Um, highlight our friends from United We Dream, you can text uh, NOTIFICA um, to that number right there and it would give them a 411 on on what to do. Um, As well as with businesses and E-Verify. Businesses with more than 25 employees are required to use E-Verify, a flawed system that determines work eligibility based on immigration status. This has already hurt businesses in Florida as we saw a mass exodus of migrant workers leaving Florida. Recently, we saw a video of Florida legislators freaking out in a private meeting with different farm workers and farm owners saying, whoa, we don't know what's happening. What's going on here? Our our workers are leaving. And then one of the legislators said, hold on we weren't expecting this this was just a a a ploy to make people get scared to to kind of put us in the news and and provide a fear movement of of what we're trying to approach here and kind of the agenda we're trying to push here well it kind of backfired on them and a a lot of the community just completely left and it's been really hurtful for florida It's been a a real punch in the face for a lot of Floridians because the workforce just isn't there anymore. We're seeing job sites that are just empty and abandoned. We're noticing that a bunch of produce is abandoned and empty. One of the Florida's biggest impact economically is tourism. We're now seeing one of the highest drops of tourists in the state of Florida historically. So attacks on immigrants and this policy have not worked. And now we're going back to, I, I'm really wanting to, to keep the idea of the deterrence to, through fear, that policy that I, I, I talked about in the history. And I wanted to talk about that because it is a foundation of the immigration system that we have today and how it simply has not worked. And yet we continue to go back to that deference through fear. And we see the flaw in it and we still use it. And I think to myself that the definition of insanity is to do the exact same thing over and over and over and expect different results. And yet here we have categorically data to show us that this really has not changed at all. This really hasn't affected communities in the way that we think migration has actually slowed down. We actually see people leaving the country, going back home. Then we do seeing the historic numbers of where we are right now. Community IDs, still going back to uh, this horrific law uh, with SB 1718, uh, local governments are no longer allowed to provide funds for community IDs. However, existing community IDs may remain valid forms of local identification and community ID programs. Meaning if your county was able to give community IDs and that was the only ID you had to get, let's say, um, a library card, start your electricity, get your water bills going, get a a checkings account on Wells Fargo or Chase or whatever bank you use, you no longer have that option to be able to get a new ID. Imagine that for everything that you need, even just to get a Costco card, you need an ID. Detrimental to our community. Now, let's talk about seeking health care and how awful this is. Hospitals will be required to ask for a patient's immigration status. However, everybody, regardless of status, still has the right to access health care. Uh, and you can decline to answer this question when asked. Why should my doctor know my immigration status to be able to know if they can provide medical aid for me? I recently had the privilege to work with a group of folks who um, um, have a diagnosis of cancer. And I was breaking down inside as I listened to the stories of some of the, the elders in the groups share how immigration was a fear of theirs to get chemo, how immigration stop them from getting chemotherapy that could potentially save their lives.
1: That really rocked me to the core. That at this point, we can get shaken so bad that we're stopping people from getting life-saving medical access. That really
0: just shook me. And as I held back tears, I listened to countless and countless stories of folks sharing the fear that draws them away from coming into accessing medical care. Now we have to fear in Florida that a doctor will let somebody know about our immigration status. That is why it's important for us, my friends, to speak out. So now taking a step back and thinking about what what is going on with our with this policy has it worked before and just like we're talking about are these policies worked before no my friends see currently in arizona we have this bill called sb 1070 which was magically called the show me your papers law and in this law we noticed that it did not work economically for arizona And it did not uh, uh, support the way that we were thriving in our economy here. SB 1070 hurt so many communities. And what that pushed was our community members to move forth to being able to shut down SB 1070 and bring down the person who mainly signed off on this and pushed this on. So SB 1070 did not work. And going back to that policy, my friends, I want this to really be grounded for everybody to understand that deterrence through fear does not work. Deterrence through fear does not work. Because it didn't work with SB 1070. And we're already seeing the numbers and the effect of of what the disastrous economical ploy is happening right now in Florida. We're already seeing the disasters of where we are. So now my friends, we're thinking, okay, Eddie, we've got these like policies. We understand that it turns through fear does not work, but why should we care as Jews? Like why Jewishly should we have a grounding in in really caring about migrant justice? Why does Uriel Etzede care about migrant justice? They're an Orthodox organization why are they out there fighting for migrant rights, my friends? Because I I truly think that migrant justice is a Torah, uh, is 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 in our Torah, and it's it's part of Jewish ethics to really stand up for the most vulnerable. And I've had the pleasure and honor of supporting hundreds of people and learning with my great mentor Reb Shmuley and seeing how how vital and how much of a Jewish issue. Migration justice is. So here's some some amazing sources that we can bring up and talk about. When we're talking about migration justice, and here Nachmanides on here talks about being loving to your neighbor. He says, the reason behind being loving to your neighbor as of one like yourself is in fact an exaggeration. For no human heart can accept loving one's fellow as one loves owns their own soul. And furthermore, Rabbi Akiva already learned that in your life comes before the life of your friend. So what, does, what, like, what are we talking about here? Moving forward, it means that this is a mitzvah to love one's friend throughout all the good things that he loves oneself. And it is possible that since the verse says, to your neighbor, instead of merely stating loving one's neighbor like yourself. Whoa! Here we're, we're, we're dropping like such powerful, powerful knowledge. The verse is comparing this love to the commandment of loving the the soldier in in Leviticus 19.34, where it says that you should be loving to himself as yourself. And I want to pause here and, and, and really highlight this part here of, oops,
1: of love. It isn't saying tolerate one's neighbor, tolerating one's friend we're moving to something completely different. We're moving to something called love,
0: which is really interesting that it's, it's this exact language that doesn't say we're gonna to just tolerate or see somebody from afar and be like, eh, no love. And how do you advocate to people that you love, my friends? It's way different, way different. See, because I love my family and my friends And I'll go to war for them.
1: But for some stranger on the street that I don't love, am I going to advocate the same way? So how do we push ourselves to really look into that deep part of love? That's really interesting. Now going forth. For sometimes
0: one loves his neighbor with things that are known to enhance his material happiness, but not his wisdom. And the qualities that are similar to it, if, however, he loves him and wishes him well with everything he desires, and that, be- that his beloved friends should be blessed with happiness, property, honor, knowledge, and wisdom, while not comparing himself to his friends, by wishing in his heart that he himself should be more than his friends and, and that all is good. For there should not be this kind of petty jealousy as the verse commands, like one does for oneself. And thus he should not make limits of this love. Thus it says, and thus this it says of Jonathan regarding David, he loved him as he loved his soul. How? In in, uh, Samuel 20 17, how? Because he had removed the attributes of jealousy from his heart, and thus following a verse of promise, and you will rule over Israel. So this is so interesting, my friends. We are literally digging deep in here on how we look at other folks. We're looking at like, well, do I love other people as I love myself? Am I feeling jealousy for other folks? And how can I eliminate that jealousy? And I'm interested to to hear what what y'all are feeling from these texts right here. Because I, I think it's it's really important that we we really deeply think about these things when we're addressing how do we advocate for strangers? Why should we care about immigrant justice? Well, see, we're told here that we're supposed to love as we love ourselves and let go of our, our, our petty desires and, and really think about how do we honor our friends? How do we think other than just for ourselves and take away jealousy often in the anti-immigrant narrative we hear, well, what about us? What about the Americans here and now? What about the folks who are experiencing poverty in the streets? What are we going to do for those folks? What about our own community that's struggling? What are we doing for the own community? And when I hear this, I think to myself, A common thing that is said in Mexico,
1: the sun shines for everybody. And thus, I think that justice, equity, and livelihood should be just
0: like the rays of the sun and should warm every single one of us. Let's move on, my friends, going here um, to the Rambam. And here we talk about the uh, halakha. That talks about each man is commanded to love each and every one of, of uh, Israel as himself. That states, love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, one should speak the praise of others and show concern for their money, just as he is concerned with his own money and seeks his own honor. Friends, this is an, a very important part for our peace. Living in a capitalistic system, that money is a huge product of what we look at and where we are. And we see that money is a foundation of our, if it's economically sustaining and economically booming, then maybe we should give that policy a chance. We know that migrants, and in specifically talking about DACA recipients, DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which gives permits to children who were brought in without their will by their parents, meaning that they had no real cognitive fault of being brought here as children. We're talking about these folks have paid hundreds and hundreds of of dollars into taxes, into our economy. DACA recipients have started businesses that have been providing so much into our economy. This starts to show our booming. Now, my friends, if we start to really think about this, how are we looking at taking care of other people by making sure that they are also thriving. And now we have a common narrative that says, well, folks are leeching off the system. Folks here come leeching off the system. That is a common thing to say. Well, my friends, for big federal
1: supports, immigrants cannot have access to that. They cannot have access to that. So they're paying
0: in taxes to a system that they cannot fully benefit from. There are some minor things that still are covered, but for major things,
1: undocumented migrants do not have access to. Them. Moving on,
0: whoever gains honor through the degradation of a colleague does not have a share in the world to come. That is so powerful to me. That is so powerful to me. When we're looking at advocacy and thinking about the stranger, are we wishing well for folks? Are we wishing for people to thrive? Or are we hoping people do not thrive in our system and that they go back? Are we setting people up to fail, but not providing an actual pathway for folks to have citizenship? And I want to pause and also acknowledge that our migration system cannot be that one where everything comes in and nobody has an idea of what's happening. I don't, I personally don't believe that that will
1: have any sort of positivity. But there has to be a system of compassion that
0: does not degrade. And is not dehumanizing when folks are coming through our borders. That's where we really have to be challenged is how do we do that? In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy it talks about loving a convert who has come to nestle under the wings of shenikha, is two positive commandments. One for he who is also included among the neighbors Who are commanded to love. And one because he is a convert. And the Torah states. And you shall love the converts. And this is specifically talking about converts in our community. Who we should openly love.
1: Openly love. Because their Shema was at Mount Sinai as yours. Their soul was at Mount Sinai as yours. They're, they're what if we were to look?
0: If we really think Bitzelam Elohim is a is a a product of, of looking at people as if they were in the image of God, it takes, it takes me to look at what's currently happening in Texas,
1: where military leaders are taught to push down, push down migrants who are crossing the river. Are we pushing down and looking at people and thinking to ourselves, that is the image of God, and I'm pushing it down. That really starts to sink in. It really starts to, to kind of unfold within us and,
0: and really try to, to, to push kind of an idea of, of
1: what are we doing with, with um, people who are seeking refuge here. Moving on,
0: if a stranger sojourn with you or whosoever may be among you throughout the generations and will offer an offering made by fire and sweet savor out on the Lord. And yes, you do so shall do. As the congregation, there shall be one statue for both you and for the stranger that sojourn with you. And a statue for every throughout of the generations as ye are. And shall the stranger be before the Lord, one law and one ordinance shall be, bo- be both for you and for the stranger that sojourneth with you. Interesting that here, not only my interpretation of this is that everything is done together
1: building on to the laws of what we're experiencing, but ensuring that folks are brought in together. So my friends, we understand that in Torah, more than 36 times we're told how to treat a stranger. More than 36 times. And I think to myself,
0: why why are we told so many times? Why are we told so many times? And I think about the fact that it's one of the hardest things to do because it involves vulnerability. It it involves us being in a space that makes us uncomfortable. It puts us in a space that we don't typically want to be at. It puts us in in a position that we have to be super vulnerable and allow ourselves to listen to a language that we don't know, Think of, of somebody that we have no history of us, that doesn't know our culture, that doesn't know our, our nine to fives, our dailies here in the United States. We, we're bringing in and opening up our communities to folks we just simply don't know and don't understand. And it's very easy for us to fall back, to fall back and say, you know what? Maybe I can just be offsetting and, and literally, and I think i'm not trying to put a pun in here but literally build walls within our own selves to not allow for folks to truly dive in to connecting now now that we're 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 talking um and and we we're able to get some some a little bit of grounding Jewishly of like why should we even care what are we doing um where are we kind of brought into um our advocacy and and not really just bringing in tikkun olam but going further than that what can we do now as a community where are we in a system that puts us and in, in to be able to act for one it early has really led a national effort of bringing in folks from all across from coast to coast we have had people come in and and volunteer with us directly supporting people here who are released from ICE detention centers. It is still ongoing where we're helping hundreds of families every single day. We are um, providing showers to people. We are providing dignity um, with clothing, um, combs, um, hygiene um, materials that can really illuminate the lives of people. We've been really active in, in providing that. But see, the way I see it and the way that we've really worked here uh, with my my great mentor, Rev. Shmuley, uh, Rabbi Shmuley and I have really looked at what are two ways that we can really exist and make a difference. And we think back to tzedek, tzedek, tirdo justice, justice, you shall pursue and noticing those two justices for us has been a translation of direct services, meaning we're supporting migrant families directly, immediately as they're being released from detention centers. They have a warm meal, a backpack with essential goods, the ability to take a shower, the ability to relax. One of the things that breaks me every single time, and I I try not to show it as much because I've been doing this for a long time, but when
1: people ask me if they're free, when people ask me if they're free, that to me has just shakes me every single time.
0: And I can't be, um, it, I, I cannot let go of that moment of when people ask me if they're free and they ask me what, where they are in the world, what state this is, what city this is. And that's how the important piece of the direct support. And see, we're still missing one more. You're saying, Eddie, what, what, what about the other justice? other justice is an advocacy and and really looking at what issues politically and um, policy-wise are affecting communities. And you may think to yourself, well, how am I going to change the immigration system? How can I really come about changing the system? Through education, my friends, through coming together, learning about the different systems that are affecting our communities, Each and every one of you can collectively learn with a friend about the issues that are already happening like in Texas and Florida, and you can collectively start to make calls mobilize your community to talk to your own representatives see my friends because I if I have a lot of Jewish friends in Florida, I'm pretty sure you have a lot of Jewish friends in Florida. And we have a lot of friends in Florida and Texas that little by little, we start to make our voice heard that these type of attacks are not OK, that these type of, of attacks are not going to be tolerated. Um, Uri Litsedek, uh recently, we we really started to to uh, um, challenge um, a lot of the policies around migrant workers and around uh immigration justice through protecting migrant workers as y'all know labor laws is 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 really big in in our in our community and and it's a really big jewish issue um i'm going to drop down into chat and for the, the recording we will we'll be able to have opportunities for folks to um engage in this but this is a position uh, um This is uh, one of our documents um, that we are putting in to protect worker rights, to protect uh, specifically field workers. Um, Just recently we had an issue here in Arizona where a Yuma farm worker died because there was no heat protection and we're seeing record highs of heat related illnesses, heat related injuries here in Arizona. And Uri Litsetic is taking a stand, trying to mobilize as many uh, Jewish voices to be able to bring up in um, advocacy, to talk to our state legislators, to talk to our federal legislators, and discuss opportunities um, for some sort of reform for a lot of migrant communities who are working out in the field virtually unprotected from the heat. This has just been um, shattering to hear that folks in this day and age are dying from heat-related illnesses. um, When we can be a source of light and illuminate some sort of justice to a lot of folks, Uh, make sure you check that out. It's also going to be on our our, um, emails and our our online systems, like our socials, so that you can be a part of that change. My friends, I want to open it up to a little bit of, of questions and dialogues around immigration justice as we walk through these systems of understanding a grounding of how the system was in place through defer- deterrence, uh, through fear, to now where we are today, through really using that exact same tactic of not working. And some of our sources that have taught us that we really have to dig deep and love the neighbor as we love ourselves and challenge ourselves to let go of some of of those uncomfortable feelings that we try to ground ourselves and uh, build walls around ourselves. So, if if folks are are unmuted, you can go ahead and ask some questions. I'm happy to dive into dialogue. I'm also monitoring our Facebook Live for some of the folks who are asking questions. And from Facebook, we're questioning. We're getting a question here that says, "Can you define what it is to be undocumented?" Uh, I want to quote the great Ellie Weisel, who who said that no human being is is illegal. And I want to quote that, and thanks for um, that question. I want to quote that by really looking at the effect that words have and the effect that uh, throughout the history of immigration, um, advocacy, immigration justice, um, immigration uh, in that sense, a lot of words have been used to dehumanize people, to allow a lot of different policies to go into place. Because see, it's very hard for folks to jump on the the wave of saying, okay, we're gonna do this, this and this to a group of people, to a group of families. But if we say hundreds of thousands of illegals, our own brain starts to separate that. And there's no longer that sense of humanity, When we're looking at those folks, and I know that there's a lot of folks that say, well, these are technical lawful legal terms that we're speaking in here. But I think that we have to even challenge that and approach the narrative and switch that to bring back humanity into us, because for a long time in history, morality has never really truly equated to legality, especially with our laws here. And I want to reemphasize that morality doesn't necessarily always equate with legality. And this is where I think we have a huge opportunity to change the way we address specific language that we use to address human beings. Thanks for that question. Yes, Aglaya
2: Oh, I've been unmuted this whole time. Okay, that's weird. <laughs> um, so, sorry, I'm probably going to say this rather sarcastically. Okay, so, but... Um, okay, God forgive me, okay, the the people who, the fear tactics that don't work, they're not, I'm not sure that they're for migrants. Mm -hmm. I think that they're actually supposed to be for people who's, you know, they want their votes, and Mm -hmm. so what's the best way to get their votes is to have them, like, basically see these, like, oh, yes, we're going to do all this scary stuff to make them scared, Mm-hmm. And then they vote based on knee jerk reactions, and then all kinds of like just ridiculous decisions get made, and everything, though. So, one of my biggest frustrations as a teacher is trying to dismantle this. Okay, seriously, do you really honestly think? But it is really frustrating to try to because they've already had this knee jerk reaction to it. Now, and I'll just tell you right now, when it comes to um, putting me in jail for 15 years, Rhonda, I I'm think Rhonda Santos will, he can see how that conversation goes with him. He can take me. <laughs> like, and he can see how that conversation goes with me. Okay. I'm just saying. But anyway, though, like um, the frustration for me, though, like the main point is, though, is the, my frustration is um, dismantling because the migrants, not who they're trying to scale. Mm. They, Actually, though, like saying, letting them die and doing these big, ridiculous gestures that Greg Abbott did by sending migrants to Kamala Harris's house, you know, for Christmas. That was not for those, for the migrants. That was a show for his own people. So I don't know if you want to address that or.
0: Yeah, definitely. We, we have a history of seeing folks uh, use a lot of uh, migrants for political uh, advancements and political stunts. Um, that truly don't really benefit anybody. Um, And and I I truly do agree that with the rise of anti-immigrant narrative falling back into the more extremes of the xenophobic right, and I almost dare say also the extremes of the xenophobic left, that uh, far left folks are also using anti-immigrant othering, that the same far right folks are using, And I think both sides use that same type of narrative um, to really ramp up their own basis. I 100% agree with that. Uh, And at the end of the day, who is the most impacted? We notice that it's migrants and and undocumented immigrants. Um, And I want to be very clear that immigration issue is one of issues that has been affected by both political sides. When we look at uh, President Obama's time, he deported more people than any other sitting president at his time. More people than any other sitting president. And these were happening when we controlled, uh, when folks can say like there was control of uh, from the Democrat side in both the House and, and the Senate and the presidency, right? And this was at a time where you can seem like a lot of uh, quote-unquote progressive policies could come into play. Folks were still getting deported at that time in huge volumes. Family separation was still happening in huge volumes. So both sides have been complicit in really hurting a lot of migrants to use them as a building block to pass some sort of an agenda that really incites a base, but has no actual functional policy in place to be able to support families. And that's where we see a lot of folks on both sides fail, where they're saying, well, we're going to be tough on immigration and tough on crime, but we're not going to address how we're going to support the families here. And on the other side, we're saying, well, we're going to help the families, but we're also going to kind of neglect some of the the here and the ends out of actual crime that does happen. And there is no fault in between. And then there's also no policy and pathway for folks to have access to a pathway to citizenship. And I think that's where at, at the end of the day, everything just falls apart. Uh, we were in uh, early really really uh, pushed for a fight for DACA recipients to have a pathway to citizenship back in 2000, uh 2022, I believe we were, uh, our team was in DC and we were talking to legislators and really like we were, we were close and then everything just went boom, it all went away in a split second, you know, um, and that, that really, uh, I, I love that you talked about that, Aglea, because it, it really starts to show us how much of an influence a lot of our community has when we're looking at policy is really now directed to, is it inciting a base? Is it pushing for that base to really fall for these uh, tactics? Or is it not really working for real-life con- like real issues that will um, either positively or negatively affect communities here and now. Um, So yeah, 100%. um, I I completely agree. We're getting one more question from Facebook. Um, Somebody actually just messaged me. Um, Do folks have the same sort of support who are Ukrainian versus people who are undocumented? No. Uh, if you are a refugee, which I think these are um, a lot of the Ukrainian families are fall into that parts of the refugee, those folks, meaning it means that they had their immigration uh, process outside of the United States coming into the United States with already lawful paperwork. That's what it means to be a refugee. It means that your system, your, your paperwork was uh, filed outside of the United States coming into the United States because... Um, you have been deemed um, by the United States a place where you can apply to be a refugee, meaning war-torn places or where uh, the United States has deemed you know, can apply for that. So if the United States doesn't deem you as like a war and torn nation or something like that, you cannot apply to be a refugee at that place, if they have not There's other policies in place as well, uh, such as like natural disasters, but it has to be deemed before the United States to come in here. Once you're coming in here, you actually have a refugee resettlement agency that can really support you. A lot of asylum seeking families who come in, um, on asylum, which is a legal act to claim asylum in the United States, I want to make sure that everybody understands that it's in our constitution to be able to seek asylum lawfully in the United States. As long as you can prove uh, credible fear uh, through political persecution, sexual persecution, um, and uh, other uh, other sorts of violence, but you have to have proof. And seeking asylum to be able to claim it fully is very very hard, uh, but it's a lawful process. So those folks that are undocumented or are seeking asylum, they don't have the same resources that a lot of of the uh, families who are are, um, refugees receive, like a caseworker that can help them walk through the system, uh, learn how to get a library card, learn how to sign up for school. Um, They don't have the same access. So um, they unfortunately don't have um, the exact same um, support, but um, we're 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 trying to fight so that we ensure that everybody has the same, if not more um, access to equitable support um, and that folks can have as much as um, support as possible to be as welcoming as possible to into our communities so um thank you so much to every single one of you if um there are no questions uh i appreciate all of you um and i just want to end by summarizing that our immigration system is is flawed intentionally uh it is a system that works as it as it was intended to work because it has a system of Being able to try to defer people through fear and making it as hard as possible to have a pathway to citizenship but that doesn't mean that we can't come in and fix some of these uh, gaps some of these spaces with our own community fighting back and standing up i think that immigration is a jewish issue i wholeheartedly think that it should be a frontline issue in the jewish community To advocate for the stranger as every year every single one of us sits down and has four cups of wine and we are reminded of our great migration journey thank you so much all of you for spending some time with me today um, I hope to learn with you more. Please make sure to follow Erlit and all of our immigration justice um, and advocacy work. You are always welcome to come help save lives with us. And please sign our petition that would be linked with the video and the recording below to be a
1: part of that advocacy and that change. Thank you so much, everybody. Take care. Bye.